It is so good to be with you guys. This is like coming back and seeing that your firstborn has grown up. Uh, many of you may not know College Park North Indy, but that's where I come from, and we were uh, excited to see how God has started this church here in Fishers. Congratulations on your property, your building plans. I know there's been a lot going on here. Self-governance coming up soon. So this is just a tremendous season, and we are thrilled at what God is doing here in actually our own city. Marty and I live here in Fishers, and so it's kind of tempting to come on over here a little bit closer to home. Well, I love REACH. I love a chance every year to look beyond our immediate horizons, and I love a chance to wear pajamas to church and preach in them. Just to give you a picture that the world is different than what we see here in North Indy. Would you join me in prayer as we go to God's Word? Father, our request today as we begin to look at your Word is simply what those Greek men asked of Philip as they came to the Feast of the Passover. Sir, we would see Jesus. So Holy Spirit, you have been sent for this purpose, to make clear and to lift high the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would do that today. We want to see him in a new way. We want to love him more. We want to be his obedient servants. So work in our hearts to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they were flat out wrong. He was convinced of it. They were teaching that a man was God and that he had come back to life from the dead. This was a ridiculous teaching. It was heretical and it was even blasphemous. And these people had to be stopped no matter what the cost, even if it took brute force. And these people were so insistent on this teaching that it was taking brute force to stop them. He was a religious fundamentalist. He was a fanatic. He was a killer who was convinced that he was working for God. Now, the man I'm talking about is not a Muslim terrorist. The man's name was Saul, and he was a Jew. And he, along with many other Jews of his time, were so incensed at the teaching of these followers of Jesus, that Jesus was God, that Paul had devoted his life to wiping out this heretical sect. And then, in a moment, his life was changed. Just like that, this man who was so convinced he was right, that he was willing to kill people who disagreed with him, realized that all of his life he had been wrong. What happened? In a word, he met Jesus. And his life was changed forever. And whenever we meet Jesus, our lives are going to be changed forever. Now, in our text, Paul has been arrested for creating a disturbance in the city of Jerusalem. And in his defense before King Agrippa, he recounts the events that happened some 25 years earlier. He had been on the road to Damascus to arrest more Christians when suddenly a bright light shone out of heaven, as bright as the sun. And that's the story that we've just read. It's interesting that this story is repeated also in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is again on trial, and before a Roman tribunal, he relates the same story, and now in front of King Agrippa, the third time we see this story in the book of Acts. This is an important story for us to get. And the theme of his defense is from darkness 
to light. In a remarkable piece of irony, this man who was so sure that he was walking in the light, a light shines on him so bright that it blinds him, and he realizes that he had actually been walking in darkness his entire life. And now this person who appeared to him commands him to go and to bring other people out of darkness into light, as has just happened with him. So the theme for our text is from darkness to light. This is the theme of REACH this year. And in this passage, we're going to see three elements of the journey from darkness to light. The first element is the commissioner, verse 15. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you've thought about the theme of REACH from darkness to light, you might be a little bit offended at that thought. What do I mean? Well, a couple of weeks ago, my wife Marty was at the doctor, and she was telling him about a visitor that we had from India that had been church planting in Delhi. And uh, the doctor asked Marty a very interesting question. He said, how do you suppose people feel when they are suddenly told that what they've believed all their life is wrong? Now, that's a great question. I mean, how could I say that I'm in the light and that you are in darkness? I mean, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that judgmental? Isn't that narrow-minded? I mean, any of us could be wrong about any of these things, and so we're taught and we, we feel this in our culture today that we should just simply not be dogmatic about religious things because it's just everybody's opinion. It makes a lot of sense from a human perspective, but there is someone who does not have simply a human perspective. There is someone who literally knows it all, and that someone has been given the name, the truth. And it was that someone who appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, when the light shined down on him, realized instantly that he was in the presence of not just a human being. What did he say? He said, who are you, Lord, verse 15. And if you haven't opened your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 26. Look at verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? He realized this was a unique person that he had never met before. And the answer is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And if you have a red letter Bible, the next three verses are all in red because these are the words of Jesus, the commissioner, telling Saul what he is now commanded to do on behalf of the commissioner. You see, the authority to do any job rests with the stature of the person who gives you that assignment. If your classmate or your colleague or your teammate asks you to do something, you'll consider it, and you might or might not do it. But if the CEO of the company, if the principal of your school, or if the head coach of your team says to do something, you don't say why, you say how high. You respond immediately. So who was this who was making declarations about what was darkness and what was light? It was Jesus. Now Saul did not get a good look at Jesus. It was such a bright light. It was like looking at the sun. But there was another apostle a few decades later who got a clearer glimpse of Jesus. And I think he may have been looking at Jesus through those eclipse sunglasses, you know, where he could actually see what was going on. And John describes Jesus like this. He says his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Did you catch that? Jesus holds seven stars, seven suns in his right hand. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This is Jesus who is commissioning Saul. It is Jesus who is the firstborn of all creation. The one by whom and through whom everything was made. It is Jesus in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and who upholds all things by the word of his power. This was Jesus who has been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess as we just sang that he is Lord. This was Jesus who has entered into heaven, the scripture says, and is at the right hand of God with authorities and angels and powers being subjected to him. This was Jesus that Revelation says is the faithful and true witness who holds in his hands the keys to death and hell. This is the Lion of Judah who is speaking that we've just sung about. This is the first and the last, the one who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. It is Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is speaking this all. And it is the same Jesus who was declared in power by the Spirit of holiness to be the Son of God through the resurrection from the dead, who appeared to the twelve apostles on that mountain. And he said to them in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I think the most important word of the Great Commission is that word, therefore. It is because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth that he decides, he knows what is true, what is right, what is dark, what is light. And he sends us out with the commission to tell people his truth. My friends, missions is not our idea. It is not a human endeavor. Who would be foolish or arrogant enough to think that they were right and they needed to go set the whole world straight? Certainly not me. But there is one and there is only one who knows the truth. In fact, he knows more than E.F. Hutton. And when he talks, we need to do what? We need to listen. See, we may each have our opinions, but discussion stops when the sun speaks. He is the light of the world, and in his light, we see light. Missions makes no sense until we first see the commissioner, Jesus Christ. The second element of the journey from darkness to light is the commission itself, verses 18 and then 20 to 23. What is it now that Jesus is specifically telling Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, to go and do? And in verse 18, in the Greek, there are three infinitives. So this is a real easy assignment to understand. They, the verbs are these, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and the third infinitive is to receive forgiveness of sins. Saul is now to go and to preach to people so that their eyes will be opened, they will turn from darkness to light, so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place with those who are sanctified by faith in me, verse 18. Let's take a look at each of these three elements of the commission. First, to open their eyes, verse 18. 
You remember what Satan promised Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He said, if you will eat from the forbidden tree, your eyes will be what? Opened. And exactly the opposite happened. Don't ever believe Satan. He's a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. Their eyes were closed, such that Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, to turn them from darkness to light. Not only are people blind, they are also in darkness. So the first part of the solution is to take the scales off their eyes so they can see, but if they stay in a dark room, it doesn't help to have open eyes. I want to explore this metaphor briefly this morning. Darkness, first of all, is dangerous. You've discovered this if you tried to walk around uh, at night in the dark. You don't do it. A couple of weeks ago, I was coming back into the bedroom from walking in the hallway, and it bumped into a trunk of clothes that's not usually there, and I stubbed my toe. Now, the only danger was a little hurt toe and the risk that my wife would find out the true state of my sanctification. But this is not a matter of stubbing a toe. This is a matter, spiritual darkness is a matter of life and death. When I was in junior high, I grew up in Pakistan, so Tim, I've actually spent 28 years in Pakistan, but just 14 years as a missionary. But in junior high, we went on a hiking trip in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. And uh, there were about 25 of us, backpacks, all the, the gear that you need, and we'd left a little bit late, and we, we had crossed a 10,000-foot peak, had about another hour to go, and it was starting to get dark. And back in the olden days, we didn't all have flashlights. We had maybe five or six flashlights for all of us. And I still remember walking on this mountain trail. You know, there's a guy, three people ahead of me with a light, and I was kind of trying to see in his light where this little path was going. And suddenly we heard a thump and a roll and a thud. And one of the girls in our party had fallen off the edge of the path. We scrambled down. We brought her up. She had fallen maybe 20 feet or so, no broken bones, and uh, got her backpack on and continued on and made the campgrounds. And the next morning, we came back to that exact spot to see what had happened. And we, went, we looked down, and there, the tree that had stopped her fall was right on the edge of a cliff. My friend, spiritual darkness is a matter of life and death. If you choose to remain in the dominion of Satan, which is the same as darkness, our text says, you will end up where Satan is going to end up, and that is in the lake of fire is a serious matter. Secondly, darkness has degrees. I, I didn't really know a lot about the physics of light, and I still don't, but uh, I'm told that darkness actually itself is not a thing. Only light is a thing. And so we don't really measure darkness, but we measure light. If you go out at night, you know, various nights during the month, the, the, the sky will have different levels of brightness to it. And Somebody named Bortle has developed a nine numerical point scale for the brightness of a night sky, measured by how much light is there. But even on a very dark night when you go out, there's still plenty of light. Where do you go to get really dark? Well, you could go inside your house and shut the door at night. But even then, after a few minutes, you're going to see light creeping under the, the door because there's light around you. Where do you go to get super dark in this world? You have to go to a cave. 
And many of you have been deep inside a cave where they've turned out the lights, and suddenly you realize for the first time in your life what it's like to have zero light. It is so dark that you can feel it. It's so dark that you can't see the fingers in front of your face. It's so dark that you don't even know if your eyes are open or not because it doesn't make any difference. You can't see anything. So we understand that about physical light and darkness, but I wonder if we understand the same truth about spiritual light and darkness because that's what Jesus is telling Saul in this verse. Can we determine degrees of spiritual darkness in our world? Is someone living in the United States, for instance, in less darkness than someone who lives in, let's say, Somalia? Or is someone who lives in India in greater darkness than somebody who may live in Europe? Well, there is a sense in which anyone apart from Christ is in darkness. But here's what I want you to understand. There's a difference between light that is ignored Light that is rejected and light that is absent. Did you catch that? There's a difference between light that is ignored. Some people see the light and they don't, they're not interested in it. They say, I might come back to that later in life, but it's not for me right now. Well, that's on them. Other people reject the light that comes to them. They have it. They've looked at it. But they do what Jesus says in John chapter 3. The light has come into the world, but men have hated the light because... Why? They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. When you come into the light, Jesus will shine his light on your life and expose the evil of your heart, and many people don't want that. And so they reject the light. But those two situations, I think, are categorically different from a situation in the bottom of a cave where there is zero light. Is there a way to quantify that? Can we actually see where in the world the darkest places are. Yes, there is, actually. And this might be new information for you this morning. So I'm glad you came to church. Now, let me be clear about this. Satan is, I think, equally active everywhere in the world. Satan is holding people in North Africa, in the Middle East, in the darkness of Islam. He's holding people in South Asia, in the darkness of Hinduism. He's holding people, as Jill said, in Southeast Asia, in the darkness of Buddhism. And he's holding people in Europe and North America in the darkness of materialism and secularism and agnosticism. Satan has spread his darkness all over the world. So how do we find out where the most dark places are? We have to try to figure out where the light is. And this is not as complicated as you might think. Because what is the light of the world spiritually? It is Jesus. And so wherever Jesus is in the world is where there's light. You, yeah, but Jesus is everywhere. Well, you're right theologically. God is everywhere. And there's a sense from Romans 1 that all people do understand something about God. They understand He's divine and that He's powerful. But the salvation that is in Jesus, the revelation of what He has done on the cross, is only available where His Word is and where His people are. And so I want to show you a map of this. If we could lower the screen, I'm just going to try to help you understand that we have figured this out with data. We know where the light is in the world. Now, I want to show you first a map of the world at night. This is where there's physical light around the world at night. I don't know how well you can see that. Many, many dark places in the world physically. Now, if we could do the same thing spiritually, what would that map look like? 
Well, we know where the Christians are around the world. And so here's the answer to that question. It's scientific. It's data-based. The red parts of the world are where there are less than 2% evangelical Christians. The yellow parts are where there's 2 to 5%. And the green parts are where there is more than 5% Christian. The red parts of the world are where the darkness is the deepest. Not because Satan is more active there, but simply because God's people are not there in great numbers. And you might say, well, why is this the case? We've had this commission for 2,000 years. And still about a third of the world, almost 3 billion people live in the red parts of the world where they will never know a Christian and likely never hear the gospel. Well, I have a video I want to show you that will help you understand this as well as how we got to where we are today. In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know Him and to be known by Him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to Himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing Him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us. And then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah. There are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only 1 one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. 
There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that he does. He put this desire on our heart to see the unreached reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups that brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshiped by all peoples. Why do you think that's the case today? I think because we haven't understood that there are degrees of darkness in the world. We have not triaged the situation. We have not set our priorities where we should have. But the good news is that light has come into the darkness. And I, I'm not sure you've actually got this point yet. So let me try one more experiment with you, if you don't mind. That there are degrees of darkness. So if you could turn the lights off for a second, we're going to make it as dark as we can in here. This is the world without Jesus Christ. You wouldn't want to get up and walk around. It's dangerous. Now, this is the world of people who know Jesus in our world today. So turn the lights on. That section of people that represent those who are Christians in the world. All right. So you guys right here represent approximately all the Christians in this whole room. Um, how do you feel? Pretty nice to be in the light. There's still some darkness there, yeah, under the chairs, but I mean, you can see, you could even read, you've got light, but look back, there's nothing but darkness, darkness, darkness over the rest of the world, and, and this is what, thanks, you can turn the lights back on now before anybody freaks out. This is what Jesus is telling Paul to do. He says, I've shined my light on you, now I want you to go and take that light to the ends of the earth, because the third truth about darkness is it is dispelled when the light comes. Isaiah 9, 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Do you remember what that light was? Just a few verses later, it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus is the light of the world. And the news of what he did that Paul describes at the end of our text today, turn to verse 23 of Acts chapter 26. This is the light of the world, the news that the Christ must suffer, and in suffering, dying, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's easy to dispel the darkness. If we just lit one candle in this dark room, it would be light. The light has come into the world. It is Jesus, and the message that he has died and risen again is light for the nations. Once they receive that by faith, as it says in verse 20, then what will happen? Our third verb will happen in the commission. Once they have repented and turned to Jesus in faith, 
Then, verse 18, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, the light needs to be offered, but then people need to respond to it. And as they turn to Jesus, to his light, they will receive forgiveness and a place in heaven. So that's the commissioner. That's the commission, but there's one more element of this journey from darkness to light, and that is the commissioned, verses 16, 17, and 19. What is the solution to get light to dark parts of the world? It's right here in verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now think about how God could have done this. God had just appeared to one man and brought him into light. God could have said, okay, Saul, you're good now. I'm going to go to appear to the next person and the next person and the next person. He could have appeared to everybody on the face of the earth. He could appear to all 7.7 billion people and let them each see him directly. And sometimes I wonder why Jesus didn't do that because it's a pretty effective way for people to learn about Jesus. But that is not his strategy. He said, Saul, now that I have appeared to you and rescued you, I am sending you to go and bring them from darkness to light. You see, while salvation is God's work alone, and Paul realized that he could not open blind eyes, he could not bring darkness into light. This was something that Jesus does, but Jesus uses means to accomplish that purpose, and that means is us, or if you're a grammar teacher, that means is we. William Carey was a cobbler in England in the latter part of the 18th century, and he had an unusual interest in the world, and he had a map of the world on his cobbler shop wall. And he felt a burden to go to the people of India who were in deep darkness because there was virtually no light in that whole continent. And India is almost a continent. So he approached the elders of his church, said, would you send me to go to India to bring those people from darkness to light? And one of the elders set him down and they said, young man, sit down. When God chooses to save the heathen, he will do so without your help or mine. And that was essentially what the church believed for 1,800 years. That's why there was no mission activity to speak of from the time of the end of the apostolic age to the 1800s. Because people thought God is just going to do this. They hadn't read Acts 26. They hadn't understood that now there's a commissioned people. That the commissioner has a means and the means is to send his people out. And so William Carey wrote a book. And this title's too long. It wouldn't work in today's society. But the title's fascinating. He said, An Enquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen by William Carey. And this book launched the modern Protestant missionary movement because people realized afresh and for many the first time that God commissions people to go and bring people out of darkness into light. Well, what does it mean to be the commissioned? Verse 16 but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. The first thing it means is that you understand that you are a servant. Now those of you, which is all of you essentially, who have grown up in this wonderful Western egalitarian democratic society, you don't have any idea what the word servant means. We think we all have equal rights. A servant does not have equal rights. In fact, this word originally was used for those people in the bottom of those big ocean-going ships that were chained to a bench and had to row. How much authority 
and input did they have in their work? They had a guy cracking a whip over their heads to make them row harder and faster. That's what it means to be a servant. And Jesus is telling Paul that he, the commissioner, has now appointed him to be a servant. He didn't ask Paul for his opinion. He didn't get his permission. He didn't even tell him, you can back out if things get hard. He said, you are my servant to do this job, and you will do what I have commanded you to do. And Saul understood that. In fact, the two questions that he asked Jesus in that whole experience, they're recorded in Acts 22. First of all, who are you, Lord, that we've seen already? But the very next question, once he saw the Lord, do you know what his next question was? Is it safe? No, he didn't ask that. That's what we ask. Saul's very next question was, what shall I do, Lord? Because he understood that once a boss, once a commissioner, once a CEO issues a command, the servant simply obeys and does it. Secondly, I've appointed you to be a servant and a witness. What does a witness do? A witness simply talks about things that they've seen or heard. And Jesus has told Saul, now that I've appeared to you and I will continue to appear, I want you to tell other people what you've seen of me. And that's as simple as this job is. If you have not had an experience with Jesus, if you've not met him, you have nothing to share. You're, you're not one of the commissioned because you can't be a witness. But if you have experienced Jesus, if he has changed your life, he is appointing you to be a servant and a witness of the things that he has done to turn your life around to break the chains that we've sung about this morning and give you freedom in Him. He wants you to talk about it. And the Greek word here is very interesting. It's the Greek word martura. Does that ring a bell? We get our English word martyr from this word. Why? Well, there was a hint in verse 17. He says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Why would He need to deliver Him from His people and from the Gentiles? Because people don't like being told that they're wrong. And if you keep doing it, they might lay hands on you. And if you continue to tell them they're wrong, they might even want to wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Ananias told Paul in Damascus, he said, The Lord has told me to tell you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul understood that part of being commissioned meant that he was going to have to witness and he might even have to give his life, and he did give his life as he accomplished this task that the commissioner had sent him on. And this is where you and I typically tap out because we don't understand what it means to be a servant. We think it's my choice if I want to do it or not. If it's safe, if it's comfortable, if I don't have to get too worried and too uptight, then I might do it, but otherwise I'm, I'm not involved. My friends, if you're not willing to go on a vision trip, to go to London or to go to Laos this next year because you're afraid, you have not understood what it means to be a servant and what it means to be a witness of what Jesus has done for you. And finally, we must be obedient. Did you see what Saul said to Agrippa, verse 18? Therefore, O King Agrippa, o King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Jesus told Saul after he appeared to him, he said, now get up and stand on your feet. I think some of us this morning might need a kick in the pants, not because we've fallen down in worship at the face of Jesus, but because we've fallen down on our couches and we just can't get up. And his word to us this morning as the commissioner is get up and stand on your feet. We're all about us and we're none about him because we haven't seen him yet in all of his glory. And if that is all that you want from Jesus, it's just that you get your ticket home, then 
your experience of him is so shallow. You've not really seen Jesus in his glory like Saul did. Well, as we close, there are three application questions that I want you to think about. First is, do you have the light? There might be some of you visiting today, some of you who have been looking at the light, but you've never fully come into it. You've never turned from your sins and invited Jesus to cleanse you and to give you new life. What a great day for you to come into the light here at Reach. Secondly, is your light shining? Or have you hidden it under a bushel? Like Jesus said, was not a very good idea at all. If Jesus is alive in you, he wants that light to shine. Now, I must admit, I'm not great at this. I'm not a natural evangelist. I have to work at this. And so I swim a couple days a week at the Y over here in Fishers. And afterwards, I, I enjoy being in the hot tub. I mean, that's like when I'm sitting there after a good workout, it's like this is, this is close to heaven. This is wonderful. Well, there's been another guy that kind of finishes swimming about the same time I do. And I've, over the last really two or three years, I've been trying to connect with him. And he's not been real friendly. But I, I keep talking and found out he's from Iran. He moved here about 30 years ago. And um, the other day we were in the, I know this is kind of strange, but in the hot tub together, evangelism in the hot tub. And he, as soon as I got in, he said, so are you a judge? And I said, what? He said, are you a judge? And I said, no, actually, I'm a pastor. And he said, so I was pretty close, right? <laughs> I thought, my goodness, what do people think of pastors? But it opened up an opportunity for me to say, you know, we believe that there's one judge and we're all going to face him. And he said, yeah, we believe that too. And I said, well, we believe that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was a savior who delivers us from that fear of that day of judgment. And God just opened up a beautiful chance for me to, to share. And I think God will do the same thing for you and he'll continue to do it for me if we will pray and seek for opportunities right here where we are to let our light shine. But my friends, it can't stop here. And my third and final question is, how far is your light shining? Do you understand that if every Christian in the world were just to like, get full wattage, just be so bright and share with everybody they knew, that still one third of the world would be in darkness? See, the answer is not just to shine where you are. It's to shine in the dark places of the world. And how can you do that? You can do it by going, or you can do it by sending and encouraging and praying for those who do go. People like Allison and Connor and like Jill, they need prayers, they need encouragement, they need you communicating with them. You can be a light in the darkest places of the world, even from right here in Fishers, but you need to stand up and get off, get on your feet and do something. And so connect with some of these missionaries, go on a vision trip next year. Ask yourself, is there a link between my life in Fishers and those people in the darkest part of the world? And if not, then your light, while it might be shining, is not shining very far, and he wants it to shine farther. Now, that's the facts of the case, but I'm convinced that you'll do nothing until you truly feel the darkness in your bones. How do I know that? Because that's what happened with me. I grew up in Pakistan, actually didn't like Pakistan very well, never planned to go back. Loved America. Great country. But I went back the summer between my junior and senior years of college and did an independent study in anthropology that I was majoring in. And I studied folk Islam, the religion of people in the villages who, who have a heart for God but cannot connect with him. And they visit shrines and what they call holy men. And as I was at this one shrine and this holy man was there, I saw a long line of women coming to talk to him about their problems. 
One couldn't have children and they just wept. One's child was sick. One's child wasn't getting good grades in school. One's husband was beating them. They had nowhere to turn. And they thought, this man is closer to God than I am, so maybe he can intercede for me. So they brought their rice and their chickens as a gift to him so that he would intercede for them. And as I saw that scene unfold before me, something broke in my heart. I saw the darkness in the world of Islam. I saw that people were looking for a mediator to connect them to God, and they didn't know about the true mediator, Jesus, that can hook them up directly with God. I felt the darkness in my bones. And that may be why you need to go on a vision trip. So that you can feel it and it's not just in your head, but it moves the 12 inches down into your heart. Then and only then will you do something. But you need to not only feel the darkness, you need to see the light again. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus, that glorious light from heaven who has come down for the salvation of all people. And when you see Jesus like Saul did, it's going to be an easy thing to be his servant, to be his witness. And you'll obey him joyfully to bring people out of darkness into his light. Shall we pray? Father, how we thank you that you have blessed us exceedingly. You have put us in a country where there is so much gospel witness, and we praise you for that. And my prayer for myself and for this dear church is that you would increase their wattage that the light would shine brightly here in Fishers, in Indy, in Indiana. But Lord, then that it would shine even farther as it's doing through the Shearers and Jill and their other missionaries. Lord, they can do more, I know. I pray that you would stir their hearts today as the commissioner, commissioning them to bring people out of darkness at the ends of the world into the light of Jesus Christ. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen.